which was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which shows all the events that will happen in human history from that point forward to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. A great dream given to a pagan king as a rebuke to Israel because of their disobedience, which is why they were in captivity in Babylon. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets the same, well, gets a dream that parallels Nebuchadnezzar's with four beasts. And they parallel the world governments that will come into play prior to the coming of Christ. And then at the end of his dream, we see thrones set up, one like the Son of Man coming down from the clouds, and he destroys all the wicked governments on the planet and sets up his kingdom. And then we saw in Daniel chapter 9 the time period that was given for all these events that would happen. And he said there's going to be 490 years from a certain point until Jesus Christ comes. Now that's a pretty accurate prophecy. He said, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that was March 5th, 444 B.C., Nehemiah chapter 2, when Artaxerxes issued the decree to Nehemiah to go rebuild the wall. He says, no one understand that. From that point until Jesus Christ comes, you're going to have 483 years. Now, if the Jewish people would have accepted Jesus at that time, seven more years would have clicked off, which would have fulfilled the 490 years, and the millennial period would have been established. How many here are glad that that didn't happen? Because as a result of their rejection, Paul says, now it means salvation to the Gentiles. Anybody in here of Jewish descent? Then we are known as the dog pound. We are the dogs. All right? Like the woman said to Jesus, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And he said, woman, you have great faith. So the gospel message goes out to the Gentiles. The church has started. And Paul says, when the last Gentile comes in, I believe we'll be raptured up. And I'll go over the rapture. We won't do it today. And then the nation Israel will accept Jesus as the Messiah and that last seven-year period will click off and at the end of it, Jesus will come. All right? So 483 years of that prophecy has clicked off and then God stopped his prophetic clock. Normal time continued, but the prophetic clock and the events that were to take place stopped. There's been a parenthesis and it will start up again. And when it does, the Jewish people will come to faith the seven years will click off, and then you will see Jesus come at the end of it. You have a book in your Bible that tells you all the events that will happen in that seven-year period. What's it called? What's it called? The book of Revelation. Not Revelations. It drives me nuts. Okay? You're about to be edumacated. This is probably one of the best books to learn right now. Not very many pastors will touch it because, again, it's, it's future, which means it's left up to a lot of crazies to interpret it. And let me tell you something. There are some commentaries on the book of Revelation that will curl your toes. Crazy. I think people dropped some acid and then wrote them. I don't know. But it's not very difficult to interpret the book of Revelation. The reason that some people have hard times with it is because it's written in symbolic language with literal meanings. And you start reading it and you see all these symbols and symbolisms and you can't understand them. Well, we can understand it because we are great theologians and theologianettes with great brains. 
No, you just simply go to the Old Testament and you see where those symbolisms are used and how they're used and the meanings behind them. And that's why we went to Daniel 2, 7 and 9. And so by doing that, we can pretty much piece together the events that will happen during this tribulation period. And so what God did to John, who was one of the apostles, is to give him visions of the events that would take place through symbolic language and he was told to write them down, and so we have them. Now, this letter was primarily for the churches at that time. There were seven major churches, and it was to be circulated to give the people encouragement and hope because now the Christians were being killed. They were being persecuted. Nero, at one time, killed over 2,000 of them. They ran out of wood because they crucified them along the road to Rome, that he would put them on a, uh, I think I told you this, he'd put them on a stick and coat them with tar and use them as garden torches. He'd impale them. Uh, they would take the children of believers, wrap them in animal skins, and throw them to the lions. And so you're going, okay, wait a minute. Jesus came, resurrected from the dead. Yay! The church starts 3,000, 5,000. Yay! Stephen is persecuted. The church scatters. And from then on, they get persecuted. You're going, wait a minute. This isn't how it's supposed to go. All the disciples are killed, either beheaded, run through with spears, crucified, stoned to death. They tried to boil John in oil, wouldn't die, put him on the island of Patmos. And so this letter was to be circulated around to encourage the believers, hey, Jesus is coming, just like he said he would, and he's going to make it right. He's going to do away with wicked and establish his kingdom, and the righteous will reign forever. You just sit in the wagon and be tight. You stay faithful. So this letter was to be circulated, and if it, would, if it was to get into the hands of the Romans, and it was put out in plain English, English that God was coming to destroy the Roman Empire, it wouldn't go well. They would just wipe out all the Christians completely. Okay? And so symbolic language, so the Christians could understand it, go back to the Old Testament and be encouraged. That's the idea. All right? And so we can be encouraged the same way. Now let's take it at... We'll, We'll go verse by verse like we're doing in Genesis. I was talking to a gal earlier. And what we're doing here, what I'm trying to do with you, is give you Genesis and Revelation and try to give you the big picture. Most people don't read their Bible because they don't understand it. And most people don't understand their Bible because they don't have the big picture, how it all fits in. Most of you growing up, when you went to church, the pastor would get up there, he'd take a few verses out of John or Timothy and expound upon them, and then you go home, right? And never really getting a grasp of the Bible, never really getting into it yourself because you'd start to read it and have these and thous in there, and you'd start hearing about things happening in the Old Testament, and you didn't know where they fit. Well, what I'm trying to do is give you a big picture of it, give you the skeleton of your Bible, so that you can get into it for yourself. And then you can get out to teach it. Okay? Protestantism, for the most part, I'm going to preach at you for a little bit. Protestantism, for the most part, is a lecture series. If I was to ask you, and I'm not going to, if I was to ask you, some of you have been going to church all your life, how many disciples you have, or where you're serving in the body, or who you're teaching, who you're mentoring to, who you're taking your life and pouring it into, most of you probably couldn't tell me anybody. Because for the most part, churches, you come, you sit, it's a lecture series, and you go home. And then you sit around and wait for another lecture series on how a Christian deals with his finances or how you raise your kids. 
or how to do this and this and this. Instead of coming to church and learning your Bibles outside the church, discipling other peoples and teaching them. See, we're not going to have that here. We're not going to have a lecture series. We're going to have a lecture in lab. We're going to get you out there in the Colossians 2-7 program. We're going to teach you how to disciple other people. You don't need to have a great knowledge of your Bible and have it all memorized to disciple. You just need to know more than the person you're discipling. And as you learn, you teach. I think you might have heard me say this before, but you need three people in your life as a Christian. Number one, you need a Paul. You need someone that you can turn to and say, I don't understand this passage in this Bible. Could you explain it to me? And then you also need a John Mark. That's the guy who got in Paul's face. Someone who's going to call you to the carpet, hold you to accountability. And then you need a Timothy. That's someone you can pour your life into. Someone that you can teach what God is teaching you. If you don't use it, what? You lose it. If you're coming in here and you're just getting all this information and you're going to all these Bible studies and you're not pouring it into someone else, you're like this huge blimp full of information just kind of floating around out there and someone's going to come up and pop you. <laughs> all right? So we're not going to have that. If you guys want to come and sit and just listen and go home, that's fine. But we're going to have some movers and shakers. We're going to have some people in here discipling and mentoring and going out in evangelism explosion because that's what God's called us to do. I feel better. Okay. So that's the goal here. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what church is for. That I, as a pastor and a teacher, are supposed to, as it says in Ephesians, build you up in the knowledge of God so your ligaments and your tendons are strengthened so that you won't be blown and tossed about by every wind of teaching and doctrine. That you can look at something on the TV and say, I know that's not right. I've read my Bible. Because there's a lot of it out there. Okay? All right, let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, you've got a lot of sevens in the book of Revelation because God's number is seven. And you've got seven topics in verses one through three that give you an, a broad overview or the features of this book. Number one, you see the title. It is the Revelation. Not revelations, revelation. That word in the Greek is apocalypsis. Apo in the Greek means away. Calypsis means to cover. And it literally means taking away the cover. It's unveiling Old Testament mysteries and prophecies and truths. It's letting you see. It's taking away the veil, unveiling and revealing something that was previously hidden but now has been made known. Now, what was previously hidden, but now has been made known? Well, look at the next two words. It's the revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a revealing of this seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, that's going to come and crush the serpent's head. It's the prophecy that was given to Judah from him who the scepter will not depart when Shiloh comes. It's this man, this prophet, that it says in Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up from among their countrymen, he says, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to you all that I command him. 
And I will require for everyone to listen to the words that he speaks. It is the child that the virgin will be with in Isaiah 7, 14. It is the child that's a new thing that a woman will surround, like I said in Jeremiah 32. And it's that child that Mary will bear. It is Jesus Christ, the revealing of Christ. Now, it's not only the revealing of Christ that he is going to come because he came, but what did Jesus do when he came? What was the primary purpose of Christ? And most people say, what well, was to die on the cross for the sins of the world? Nope. That's secondary. Not to minimize it, because that was a great work. His primary reason for coming to this planet was to reveal the Father. That Old Testament anticipation, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Who's coming? God in flesh. God with man. Emmanuel, that's what his name means. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's revealed the heart of the Father. It's been said that God took his heart of human love and wrapped skin around it. Ever have your little child be scared in the middle of the night? She calls you in, and you comfort her, and you go back. Lightning might strike or something, or she may hear a noise, and she gets frightened and calls you back in. And you say, listen, little girl, or listen, Susie, or listen, little Caleb. You don't have to worry about it. Jesus is right here with you. He never leaves you. You don't have to be scared. And they say, yeah, but I need some, some love with skin on it. All right? That's Jesus. That's the Father's heart wrapped in flesh. That by looking at Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. You see the compassion that he had on the sick, the lame. That it says his bowels were moved when he saw those coming to him because they were like sheep without a shepherd because the, the religious leader of his day were corrupt. Uh, when Lazarus died, he wept. He didn't weep because Lazarus was dead. Why did he weep? Because Mary and Martha were hurting. And the people around him who he cared were in great pain because of death. And death is never, not, never supposed to be here. Something else that Jesus revealed when he came. And this, to me, is one of the greatest reasons he came. He came to reveal the heart of the Father, number one. Number two, he came to show man God's purposes for man from the get-go and how you and I are to have a relationship with the Father and how you and I are supposed to be rulers of this planet. Now, if you can think back to Genesis chapter 2, God puts man on the planet, and what's he tell him to do? You rule, you be vicars or vice regents of this planet, meaning to rule in place of God. That God created the heavens and the earth, everything in six days, put man on the planet and said, here, you rule it. Your first job is to name the animals, which shows ownership. Didn't give him a list to memorize, but he said, name them. He says, you subdue it and you rule it. Now he blew it and gave over rulership to Satan. God still owns it. And we're going to see that in Revelation 4 and 5. But it says, Satan is the god of this world. He's the prince of the air. He rules the planet. We are under Satan. We're born children of Satan. Jesus came and said, listen, that's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to rule over the waves of the, uh, the sea. Did Jesus rule over the waves of the sea? Yes, he did. He said, be still, be muzzled in the Greek, and they were calm. Did he rule over the winds of the air? Yes, he did. Did he rule over the animals of the earth? Yes, he did. He rode an unbridled donkey or unbroken donkey. He caused the fish to go into the nets of the fishermen, Peter. 
what else did he do with animals? I can't remember. Did he, did he raise the dead? Did he conquer death? How about sickness and disease? Walked on water. And what he did was he said, take a look at me, fellas and ladies. I am what you're supposed to be in the flesh. And the reason you're not this way is because of sin and the fall. But guess what? God's going to put you back into this status. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, uh, but somewhere someone has said, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, for you made him a little lower than the angels in creative order, and crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything underneath him. He's quoting Psalm 8. He says, in putting everything underneath him, God left nothing that was subject to him. So in the garden, we see everything in creation was subject to Adam. He says, but we don't see everything subject to him. Why not the fall? And then here's the next verse. But we see Jesus. Isn't that good? He says, God put man on the planet, subjected everything underneath his feet, but he blew it. We don't see everything subjected to him now, but we see Jesus. And Jesus came and everything was subjected to him. He controlled all things. And he said, look at me, because that's how you're supposed to be. But don't let it get you down, because God is going to put you back into that right position. And we see it. We're going to all have glorified bodies. Those he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. Our citizenship is in heaven, where we wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Okay? So he came to reveal the heart of the Father, to reveal the plan of the Father, and the provision to get there, salvation, that he died on the cross, okay? So you've got the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what you see with Christ are four offices. Number one, you see him acting as a priest, a go-between between man and God. We see him acting as a prophet, telling of future events. We see him acting as king, king of the Jews, king of kings, lord of lords king of the universe, and then we see him acting as judge. Question, have we seen him acting in those four roles in that capacity? How about, did he act as a priest? Yep, when he came down the first time, he was a go-between, he was an intercessor. It says in Hebrews that he lives to intercede for you and I right now. God offered him up as a sacrifice for you and I. That was the job of a priest. Did he act as a prophet when he came? You bet he did. Predicted his death, predicted all future events. Matthew 24, it goes right along with the book of Revelation. Did he act as king? He came, to he came to be king of that which was his own, but his own did what? They rejected him, so he is not king. Yeah, but Bernard, the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father, only in a priestly intercessory role. And in the temple, when the priest did his work, there was no chair because his work was never finished. And it wouldn't be until a man came and died for the human race, not an animal. It says Jesus Christ offered himself once for all men, and then he sat down on the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Okay? So the work is done. Jesus said on the cross, what? It is finished. Okay? It's all him, just like the message earlier. The thief on the cross had his hands nailed and his feet nailed so he could not do anything for his salvation or walk in any path for it. It was all by grace. 
It is finished. Did he act as judge when he came down? He said, I did not come to what? To judge, but to save, to seek and save that which is lost. Okay? So future, we're going to see him in the book of Revelation as judge and king. Here come to judge. You don't see him that way. John saw him go out like a lamb. He's going to come back like a lion. He's the lion of Judah. So you see the revelation of him, the heart of the Father, the will of the Father, the death on the cross, and we see his offices. Okay? Now, <clears throat> that's the title. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. That word soon in the Greek is entake, which we got our word uh, tachometer, which measures speed, revolutions per minute. That does not mean that Jesus is coming quickly. That does not mean that I can say 74 times Jesus is coming and be wrong every time. We don't know. Jesus said no one knows the time of the day. So these religions and these people trying to prophesy like that guy out in Garland, Godland, said Jesus was coming on a certain day, you don't know. But what he's saying here is once that seven-year period starts, it's going to come. Once he comes, once he puts things in play, he's coming. He will soon come after that. Okay? Now, here are the channels that the revelation came from. That's the title. The revelation of Jesus Christ or the revealing. And here are the channels. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you've got from God to angels. No, from God to Christ. You're going to see it all through the book. God, Christ, angels, John. Sometimes Christ is going to talk right to John, to us. That you and I, and here's where this is comforting. That you and I can know that this book isn't just the result of somebody going kind of whack or harebrained. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1.21 that no prophecy ever came about by an act of human will but men moved or born or carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote from God. That John was the pen. God gave him the inspiration. He articulated with the words that he had at the time and the symbolisms that he knew and put it down for us. That it is God's word written down through John as the pen for us and for them at that time. So that's divinely inspired. Okay, we're going to see at the end of it, don't add to it, don't take away. Psalm 30 says, or Proverbs 30, the words of the Lord are flawless. They're a shield to him who takes refuge in him. Don't add to him. The Lord will rebuke you, prove you to be a liar, because they're God's word. Okay, divinely inspired. Um, let me show you something else, too. Let me back up. It says that these things must happen. That's the content of the revelation. You've got the title. You've got the channels that it comes through. God, Christ, angels, John to us. In verse 1, it says that they must soon take place. The content of the revelation is that they must happen. Why must the things in this book happen? Think Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. Because God done said what he was going to do. And we saw in Genesis 21 that God must do what he says he's going to do or he's a liar. 
So all these things were prophesied some 600 years before this was given to John, and they must take place. That's comforting to us because 2,000 years later, we're still holding on to this. And you and I can say firmly and with a heart of faith that we know that this is going to take place in the book of Revelation. Why? Because all the other things that God promised took place exactly like they were written. Now that's going to be hard because when we start going through this book, you're going to see some horrific judgments coming down upon this planet. Men are going to be destroyed. Sun is going to scorch them. Their tongues are going to swell up. They're going to be put into darkness. A quarter of the earth's population is going to be destroyed. And that's going to be scary because Russia is mentioned in the book of Revelation. China is mentioned. Egypt and Africa is mentioned. That's about three-quarters of the population of the earth. Guess who ain't mentioned? Okay. I'm not a gloom and doomer, but I'm a biblicist. We ain't in there. So one of two things, either we're the quarter of the population that's destroyed, or we're brought into this European common market. Aren't you glad you came to this church this morning? <laughs> Be encouraged. Well, the good news is hopefully God will take us off the planet. The rapture will happen before all that happens, and we'll get into that, okay? So these things must happen. Why? Because God promised them, okay? Time of fulfillment, soon, must soon take place. So if you're, if you're taking notes, what I've got is the title, the channels, the content of the revelation. They must happen. And then the time of fulfillment, antake, they will soon take place. Once they start, they're going to go. Okay? The method of communication is symbols. And we've already kind of gone over that. It's not anonymous. It's John. He's going to write down. He's going to write in symbols. And then you've got the prophetic process where you've got God giving these men divine inspiration and now they're witnesses. You know, that's why I'm a true believer that I, that I think that this miracle signs and wonders movement going on today is not of God. That you have got your Bible that's established and accredited the message by miracle signs and wonders and the messengers that it was given to. And you see that, that God accredited the apostles by allowing them to do miracle signs and wonders. Peter said that Jesus was accredited by God by doing miracles, signs, and wonders. Once something is accredited, you don't need to come back and continually accreditate it. Once you have an appraisal on a diamond ring, you don't have to carry around the appraiser with you. Now you just have a piece of paper. It's a testimony. It's a witness to what you've had done. God has established his church, the foundation of the church, Jesus as the cornerstone, and the word of God is complete. It's finished. Peter says that God has given us everything we need to live life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his glory and goodness. It's done. There's no need to add to it. Now all you need are witnesses. And John says we are witnesses to him who came from the Father and appeared to us. And we proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and now has come. We've touched him. We've felt him. Our eyes have seen him. And now he says you are witnesses too. And the Great Commission... Matthew 28 and also Acts 1.18 that we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the surrounding countries. So you don't need miracles, signs, and wonders to accreditate the message. It already has been accredited. Now you just need, now you just merely proclaim it and the Holy Spirit convicts the person 
on the inside of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because if they have to be convinced by miracles, then it ain't faith. Uh, Paul says, Jews want miraculous signs, Greek wants wisdom, Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He also said, in, uh, in my message and my preaching, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Second Corinthians, about 2.14 or so, okay? And so, John, he's the witness. That's all we need, and now we're to proclaim the same thing. Okay? Uh, let me see. Now look at verse 3. And this is the seventh one, practical purposes. Okay, I've got the title. I try to get things kind of nice and neat outlined for them. Title, channels, the content of the revelation, the time of fulfillment, the method of communication, the prophetic process, and now you've got the practical purposes of the book. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. The only book in your Bible where you get a threefold blessing. You see that? You get a blessing for reading it. You get a blessing for heeding it, obeying it. And you get a blessing for preaching it so others can hear it. Now, to be blessed means to be divinely enabled to carry out what God has commissioned you to do. Uh, you see the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and so forth. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. This is one of seven beatitudes of the book of Revelation. And you and I get a threefold blessing for reading, heeding, and teaching it. Proclaiming it. So that means we should read it every day. You're going to get blessings. Now I have to admit, I don't read it every day. But we should. It's the only book in your Bible. He labels himself John. Okay? You see that with Paul a lot of times in his letters. He addresses who he is. I, Paul, a fellow bondservant, and so forth. You've got the address, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, remember, I told you this was to circulate to the seven churches. It's called the Roman Road. In chapters 2 and 3, and I don't know how much we're going to get into it, we see the addressing of the seven churches. If you take a look at your chart, I've got the prologue and greeting, which is what we're going through now, verses 1 through 20. Then you've got the seven letters, and that should, I changed it, but I didn't, didn't copy the right chart. That should be the addressing to the seven churches. That's how that should read. I'll, I'll print out the right charts. And then you've got the preparatory scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, and then the tribulation period starts. Chapters 2 and 3, he addresses the seven churches, and each one of them are having different problems church at Ephesus have lost their first love. They're not reading their Bibles like they should. The church at Laodicea, they're on the fence. They're coming in to lecture, but they're not going into the lab. And God says, you make me sick, I'm going to ameo you, I'm going to spit you out. Like an emetic, if a kid swallowed some poison, put some milk stuff down him, right? Or what do you use, salt, water? An emetic, you can get some bottled stuff, I guess, from a pharmacist. Epicat or whatever it is. Yeah, and make them barf, right? Well, that's what it is. He says, I'm going to ameo you. 
get off too convicting. We'll stop there. But anyway, he goes through the seven churches and addresses each one of their problems, and then he gets into the uh, throne room of heaven. Okay? So it goes clockwise. If you get a map, if you've got a map in your Bible at this point, it'll show you all the major churches. Now look what he says. Look how he starts it off. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come. Grace, again, to a believer is divine enablement. And that would be encouraging to these folks because they're being persecuted and they're having to hold firm to their faith. And he says, if you sit tight, God's going to give you divine enablement to do it. When Jesus was talking to the apostles, he says, don't worry about it. You're going to be dragged before synagogue leaders and authorities. He says, but I'm going to give you words and wisdom that even your adversaries cannot resist. Divine enablement. He's saying grace. You'll get divine enablement. And so rest, peace. That word in the Greek is irene. Shalom in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Peace. Romans 5.1 says now we have peace with God. He says Jesus Christ is coming. And once these events start, they're going to come soon. I, John, am the one proclaiming this through the Holy Spirit. So you sit tight. You're going to get divine enablement and you rest you keep peace and he says this grace and peace comes through a threefold source see if you can pick it out from him who is and who was and is to come who is that who's the only one you know that that was before time and space ever began who is now and he will forevermore be that's God Jesus Okay? But there he talks about God. That's one of the sources. Okay? And from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, is there actually seven spirits before the throne? Now, here comes in a little bit of symbolism for you. Why would John say seven spirits before the throne? Or sevenfold spirit? Later on, we're going to see Jesus as described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Does Jesus have seven horns? All the pictures I've seen drawn of him, there's no seven horns. You ever hear that little boy drawing a picture of Jesus? Or drawing a picture of God? Mom comes up and says, what are you doing? Drawing a picture of God. She says, nobody knows what God looks like. He goes, they will now. All right? Why do you think it says sevenfold spirit? That's God's perfect number, seven. That's the Holy Spirit. You can go to Isaiah, I think it's uh, 12 or 11, and it talks about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God says it seven times. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay? So grace and peace comes from who is and was and is to come. That's God. Also from the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and who else? And from Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So your grace and peace, divine enablement, and the inner peace that comes to a believer comes from a threefold source. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that would be very encouraging to these people in this time. Because, again, they're undergoing great persecution. If you're undergoing great troubles in your life right now, undergoing heavy trials, you just know grace and peace are yours. They come to you from God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he cares for you. And that is ready available, just like Hagar, remember? God opened her eyes, and there was the place of blessing. There was the well. There was water. There was life. 
Same thing with us. Uh, let me see what else I want to show you here with this. Okay, watch this. It says, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, who is the faithful witness, he's going to say three things about him. Um, one other thing, too. Jesus Christ, what's the, uh, what's the full name of Jesus? The Lord Jesus Christ, okay? The Lord is his deity. The name Jesus is his humanity. And the name Christ is his office. Christ, Christos, means anointed one or the Messiah. That prophecy in Daniel 9, 483 years till the Christos, the anointed one, comes. So Lord, his deity, Jesus, his humanity, Christ, his office. Here he uses Jesus Christ. You'll only see it one other time. Showing his humanity and his office. And it's going to describe three things about him. Okay? <clears throat> Number one, he is the faithful witness. Number two, he's the firstborn from the dead. And number three, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So number one, he's a faithful witness. What do we call that? He speaks the things of God. Who in the Old Testament spoke the things of God? Who in the Old Testament said, thus saith the Lord? Anybody know? The prophets. So he is a prophet. He is a faithful witness. He says, I speak to you what the Father is telling me to speak to you. Remember, he says, I can speak nothing. I can do nothing apart from the Father because I and the Father am one. So he's a faithful witness of all that is in heaven. He says, no one's been in heaven except for he who comes down from heaven and he will go back up, John chapter 3. Isn't that encouraging? That you've got somebody that's been there, done that, and has come here and says, let me tell you, what waits you? Let me tell you the glory that you're going to receive. Now, here is all this you're going to receive. Why would you even fret or worry about what is here when you've got this waiting for you? And again, that'd be very encouraging to these people in this time. It says he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's the acceptable sacrifice to God. Firstborn, the only begotten, like Isaac, from the dead, meaning he died. Now, who offered up a sacrifice so that we could be in the presence of God in the Old Testament? The Jewish nation, the priest. So, there's his office of priest. Prophet, priest. And what's the next thing? He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's his kingship. Okay? And then what you're going to see, the next verses, we won't get into it. Verse 7 here he comes, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Why? Because he'll come to judge. And from there forward, you're going to see him come down as his judge, as the judge, and then set up his kingdom. Okay? Good stuff. Just verse by verse, we're picking it apart. Any questions? Well, we're too big now. If you got any, come up afterwards, okay? Let me pray for us and, and bless the food. Lord, again, thank you for this book. Hard to understand, but we'll take our time. We'll look at some of the interpretations of the Old Testament and try to let this word speak to our hearts so that we can be encouraged and encourage others. We thank you for this time of fellowship, this building in which we can meet, this church, this body that you put together to make an impact in this city. You do it, Lord. 
You provide for us what we need, but you work a miracle. Thank you for the food, the hands that prepared it. Bless them for Christ's glory. Amen.